Greetings and welcome to the Recombobulation Area. My name is Dan Schaefer. Thank you for joining us. Last year, during the midterm election, I wrote a story about a candidate running for Wisconsin State Assembly. That candidate was Luann Bird. Her campaign slogan was Choose Civility, and she really demonstrated that throughout her campaign and especially through talking to people in her district, out knocking on doors, and talking to voters. One of the many remarkable aspects of her unconventional campaign was just her ability to have a conversation with anyone. So after the story and after the election, we stayed in touch and we realized that while the campaign came up 2% short, those conversations that started needed to continue. So we are starting a podcast series. The podcast is called Bird on a Wire and it will feature conversations on hope, civility, and action with a variety of different guests. This podcast is presented and produced by the Recombobulation Area, and our lead sponsor for this podcast series is Civic Media. Our supporting sponsors are Marianne Lubar and Marlene Ott. We're really excited to be continuing this conversation, so please welcome Luann Bird. Luann, welcome to the Recombobulation Area, and welcome listeners to the Bird on a Wire podcast series. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for uh, providing this opportunity because it is important that we try to grow uh, civility to fix our broken political system. And thank you to the to our viewers and listeners. Um, it's exciting to um, connect with you in a different, a whole different way. So, uh, okay. Yeah, we're very excited about this. Thank so, you. I think bef- bef- so. Since this is the first episode, since we are. You know, getting into things here uh, for people who might not have have perhaps read the the feature story that I wrote last year, or people who might not know about your campaign, your career. I thought it'd be a good idea to first give our listeners a little bit of an idea about your background. Uh, you ran for assembly last year, but that was the latest in a in a career of public service and civic action. So, so how did you get started down this path? Uh, well, Dan, um, it wasn't so long ago that I was a stay-at-home mom with two young children, and uh, that was my plan, was to be a stay-at-home mom with, and raise my kids at home. Um, so it was uh, about 33 years ago, it was in 1990, that uh, I was uh, my husband was in a construction accident and was paralyzed on the job site, and the kids at that time were, were two and five. So it, that was that was the pivotal event in my life that changed everything. So um, it didn't take long for me to realize, and of course the Americans with Disabilities, well, let me say it this way, while Phil was in the hospital um, and I found out he was going to be permanently paralyzed, so uh, it was going to be, we were going to be facing a wheelchair because uh, of the type of injury he had. Um, so while some people were visiting us in the in the waiting room, I looked over at the TV and I saw George H. Bush signing the Americans with Disabilities Act into law. So I knew that that was going to affect us. I just had no idea how. Mm-hmm. So two or three months, two months, a little over two months later, Phil got out of the hospital and we went to our first event at our children's school. Mm-hmm. And our daughter, Elizabeth, was five. She was just starting kindergarten. And they were having an ice cream social. Now, I was going to be involved in the PTO. That was my plan. I wanted to be an involved parent, volunteer my time. So we went to the event. We were upstairs on the playground, and everybody else was downstairs 
and we couldn't get to it. So that's that was really uncomfortable for couldn't me. Couldn't get I, to it with the with with the wheelchair. Right, with the use of the wheelchair. Right. Yeah. So we were upstairs alone. Our kids would run back down upstairs, up and down, and a few kids would be playing on the playground, but we could not participate. And I just believed my husband should be able to be a dad for those kids. Mm-hmm. And if he wanted to participate in their, their lives, uh, that just wasn't right. So I thought I could call the secretary. That's I was pretty naive. I honestly didn't even know there was a school board at the time. And keep in mind, I had no degree, and I couldn't even type because I wasn't planning to be an activist. So mm-hmm. that wasn't in my plans. It was to be involved in uh, my kids and my family. So I ended up calling the secretary. Of course, she couldn't do anything about it. She said, well, talk to uh, the principal. I talked to the principal and she couldn't do anything about it. This was in 1990 when the uh, caps just came on the budgets for education. Okay. So you couldn't just raise your budget to upgrade buildings to, you know, handicap access. You just didn't have the opportunity without going to referendum. So that was happening at that time. So then I went to superintendent and said, hey, you know, could we fix this school so my uh, husband could participate? And that didn't happen. So then it was school board ended up uh, going to the school board eventually. I ended up, first of all, taking a typing class. So I could type. I ended up joining the League of Women Voters to try to figure out how we were going to make it work. The first two years after Phil's accident, I was just depressed. Mm -hmm. I was just miserable because everywhere we went, it wasn't just schools. It was restaurants. If we wanted to take a trip, we'd have to call ahead and see if we could even get that wheelchair in, if it was accessible. Churches, everything was difficult. So... um, You know, two years into it, that's when I took the typing class and I joined the League of Women Voters to figure out how to work with the school. So about two years into it, though, is when I stopped saying, uh, do they have to make it accessible for parents? And I said, yes. In my mind, it went, yes, they do. The law is clear. I've researched it. So if the answer is yes, they do have to, then the question in my mind became, well, how can I work with them to make it happen? Yeah. So it's not just asking the questions. It's taking that next step to, to, to put those questions into action. Exactly. Yeah. And I just had to learn that. And you just started do, kind of doing that over and over. Yes. Yes. And going up to finding out where the, who had the power to change this. Right. Right. And, and you got an interesting look at just kind of various bureaucracies yes. and, and various levels of government yes. and decision-making power and things like that exactly. uh, as you're going through this process exactly. with your husband, mm-hmm. um, trying to make things accessible for him. Yes. And not more accessible, but Completely just accessible. accessible. Yes. That's right. There isn't a scale. Right. It's, um, it's ex- right. It's accessible or not. So, yeah, so there there were some real growing experiences for me because um, along the way, of course, we had to try some different things because we couldn't get the building fixed. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, you know, involved in the PTO and we were talking about what could we do then to move the programs or make them accessible. So um, because it really isn't about the ADA isn't about the building. It's about removing the barriers. Right. to access. So we figured out we could move the program. First of all, we tried it in the gym upstairs, the Christmas program. The sure. very next program up was the Christmas program and they couldn't use the downstairs now. So they used the gym and it was overcrowded. It was a mess. Mm-hmm. So then the next step was, well, why don't we just move it over to the high school who has there, there they, it's accessible. They have a nice auditorium 
And one parent at the, a nice woman, her son was friends with my daughter. This just hurt though. She said, I don't understand why we need to inconvenience this whole school for one person. Hmm. And then you could drop a pin in the room. I mean, everybody just went silent. Yeah. And my, it felt like a knife went through my heart. And um, the rest of the meeting just kind of rolled on, continuing to talk more about how we can move the program than whether we should or not. Right. But I went home that night and I cried. I'm like, oh my gosh. But I also processed that this was not a bad person, but some people don't share our values. Some people are just ignorant and don't know. And then there's a few along the way that really just don't care. And they're not bad people, mind you. They just don't see... They don't believe in that equality thing. Well, it's kind of it's kind of probably when she said it out loud, it became one of those crystallizing moments for for it everyone was. else realizing that the, you know, kind of the inverse is is it what was. they it were uh, actioning by by yeah. making it so that you know yeah. he was not able to be uh, a part of the program, part of the right. uh, you know, part of just right. being a parent, right? No, yeah, yes. Um, so we also had, along with the wheelchair, other challenges were going on. We lived in a tiny little, like, cottagey type of house on the lake. And you were in the Fox Valley at the time? We were in Oshkosh. In Oshkosh, yeah. On Lake Beaumore. And um, the sewers weren't working right. We didn't have a sewer. I'm sorry. We had septic and holding tanks. And our septic tank wasn't working right. And, you know, you would flush the toilet and stuff. It was just not working right. It's a problem. (laughs) It was a problem. It wasn't good for anybody in our neighborhood. So uh, we ended up going with, a, eventually we built an, a house that was wheelchair accessible and, and Phil was, um, we put in a holding tank, but those have their downsides too, because a light comes on and we knew that there were failing holding tanks. So there's one guy in my neighborhood, um, Doc Metzig, great guy. He was on the bandwagon to actually create a little sanitary district for our little hundred homes that were back in this area. And he worked with the city and he worked with the state to actually create a sanitary district. And he was handwriting notes and putting them in mailboxes. And I wanted to see the sewer get in because we live on the lake and I, this needs to get cleaned up. That lake is getting polluted by all of this mess. And we had the opportunity then to hook onto the city. So I contacted Doc and I said, hey, can I help you? I can at least type your letters for you. And he said, I think you should get on the commission. So I ended up on the Sanitary District Commission getting appointed by the, we were in the town of Oshkosh. And uh, over time, and I, and I didn't really know, I didn't know how much power you have when you get into these things, right? And, you, and I remember Doc Metzik pointing his little finger at me saying, you have no idea how much power you have because we had taxing power. We could tax for the sewer system to get in and we did that. And so I helped as a Sanitary District Commissioner, it took a couple years, we got the sewer into the neighborhood. And it was, again, such a learning experience about how to take action about a, a problem that you might have. And mm-hmm. you turn that problem into hope. <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, it makes me, uh, there was somebody I was interviewing years ago uh, about, you know, something very different from this. But he said that participation is power. And that, and that is a line that has always stuck with me. So mm-hmm. I think that is what your story kind of reminds me of, too, mm-hmm. is that just by participating, just by getting involved, mm-hmm. that is power. That is power in the system and, and, and making and the, you know, the, the ability to make that change uh, in various broken systems comes from that part, starts with that participation. Mm-hmm. It does. It really does. And the, um, 
it, it's not easy to figure out solutions, but once, and I want to point out, none of this ever happens alone. So once, right. once I figured out, you know, the sanitary, getting on the sanitary district commission, you know, we're working with three commissioners and that's how you get it done. It's mm -hmm. a group thing. And then you work with your community because they still had the opportunity. They had to approve the system and make sure that it worked for them. So um, same with the wheelchair access. So shortly after that is when I realized uh, if we were going to solve the, I realized this, that the school my kids went to was not wheelchair accessible. And then if you looked at the middle school, that was even worse. It was three levels I realized that there were four schools a wheelchair couldn't even get into, and one of them was a polling place. So I had done my research on the bigger scale about what was going to happen as our kids grew in the system and started having to travel to do basketball games and things like that. And when I figured out all the challenges that were out there, um, I had my little grid. I still have it. <laughs> I kept it. <laughs> my little grid of which schools. You know, I, I made calls to all. Um, there were 22 schools at the time. And I made calls, and I said, can you park? Is there handicapped parking? Um, can you get into the building? Is there water fountains? And are there your bathrooms? Do they work? I had like four questions. And so I had this little grid that showed there were problems all over the district. So then I realized there was a school board that could do something about it. And the only way you could get something done was to pass referendums. So an election came up and I went to all of the candidates and asked them how they felt about would they support upgrading the schools for wheelchair accessibility. And so I kind of put that on the table at the time. And uh, they all said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. So, But then a year, the next summer, so some candidates got elected. They still weren't doing anything about ADA at, the, at that point. And then um, there was a school board member, Dan, that <laughs> friends, that said, and the League of Women Voters was coaching me at the time. But the school board, it was in the paper that the candidate, the no, the school board member, his name was Dennis McHugh. He said, and they were going to add staff for persons with disabilities. And he said, well, I don't think we need this. Those kids can't learn anything anyway. Another one of those very painful moments for mm -hmm. me. So this is like in the summer and I'm looking at him and I'm thinking with a guy like that on the board, how are they ever going to? If he doesn't care about the children, how are we ever going to get our schools fixed? So then the following fall, he was up for re-election. And I thought, well, I got to find someone to run against him. Because here I still was. No degree. I could type at least. But I didn't think I could get elected. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't on my radar screen. And um, so so Phil, so he, um, I looked for some people, made a few phone calls, and nobody would run. So I finally thought, well, I'm just going to put my name out there. And put the picture of me and Phil out there in a wheelchair and let the community decide. Mm -hmm. At least he'd have some competition. So the day I go in to get the papers and, and sign up, uh, he decides he's not going to run. So I have to back up just a little so, bit. So he, he, he decided he, he decided not to run and I ended up running. Not to run against and, you. He didn't want to. Oh, I don't think. Maybe. Yeah. yeah I, he yeah. took such backlash from the community. People were sure. writing letters to the editor and it was, I think he knew he might be in trouble. I don't know. Sure. I don't know, but maybe, I don't know. So, yeah. um, but prior to that, when Phil and I first got married, we, uh, there was a legislator, uh, her name was Carol Bittner at the time. And it was right after our daughter was born, she was running and looking for help. I didn't mm -hmm. know anything about running for public office, mm -hmm. but 
she needed help and I had time. So I ended up helping her on a campaign for the assembly. And that's when I learned about campaigns. And she was really good. And she was really likable. And, and, that, and she worked hard. So I had that exposure mm-hmm. early on of what... How this you had a little window into day, the process. Into the process. Yeah. And I remember thinking, gee, I could I could do that. Yeah. Because I yeah. love people and, you know, get along with people pretty well. Absolutely. So, so I had that little window. Right. So, so stepping back just for a moment here, you had, you know, your, your, your husband suffers this terrible accident. Mm-hmm. And it kind of becomes this before and after moment mm-hmm. for you. And there's the kind of, and I think there's, you know, many people have this as part of their, mm-hmm. their story. There can be these before and after moments mm-hmm. in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, the way you've described it to me and, and described it here in the podcast is this was kind of the before and after moment for you. So you had to, you know, it, it changed how your family was going to make a living and, and what your future was going to look like and, and all these different types of things. And instead of, you know... Uh, in, instead of taking one approach to it, which would be a, more of a defeatist approach to, to certain things, it, you you decided to turn that into action, right? I did. I'll tell you. And so, go ahead. Yeah. One thing that also influenced me about that was believing that Phil should be able to participate as a dad. The day he got out of the hospital, and he sent a message. The day he got out of the hospital and he comes rolling in the house and we don't know what this is going to be like, but it was always his job to put our son to bed at night. He was two at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, and so we had dinner and he just grabbed that little guy and said, come on, Tom, let's go to bed. And he put him on his lap and he wheeled him into the bedroom and he changed his diaper and he put him to bed. It was like sending a message. Mm-hmm. We're going to, life's going to go on for us. So that was another moment, like, oh, yeah. I'll never forget that. It's like, oh, okay, we're going to make this work. Yeah, just kind of the first. It sort of starts with, do you believe? Yeah. Do you believe this can be done? Right. The defeatist attitude could have been there had he had it to begin with. Sure. Had he rolled in that door and been down, and he wasn't. Yeah. He was going to be a dad, and that wasn't going to stop. And he was going to continue moving forward. He's still that way. And so you, you, he <laughs> continued moving forward, and, and you continued moving forward. I, I have a lot to learn. So, so you, okay. you got involved with you know the what was happening at your children's school. Mm-hmm. You got involved in what was happening right in your right in your backyard mm-hmm. in in your community, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think you know you from from my perspective and learning about this, you kind of see this this pattern emerge. Right, where yeah. you, you run into a run into somebody who tells you you can't do it, and you keep working to try and find a way to get something done, to to make some yeah. sort of progress, to make some sort of change. Uh, so so that happens at a very local level, and and you start to see mm-hmm. opportunity to to make those kinds of changes in, in other ways as well. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, lots of ways. There were there were lots of changes. So what happened next? Well, um, that's after we got the sewer in the neighborhood, and Dennis McHugh made those comments, and I had joined the League of Women Voters. Couldn't find anyone to run. That's when I decided to run. Mm-hmm. And for it school was, board, mm-hmm, that was about five years after Phil was paralyzed. So okay. you know, by this time they were doing a lot of stuff on ADA. There were a lot of public events. The chamber was hosting trainings and everything. So. Um, 
The first step before I got elected was to ask the district to form an Americans with Disabilities Act committee. And then we were able to get an assessment done of all of the schools. So we had this base of information to go on. There's no, it was like $3 million or $4 million to upgrade the whole district. And there's caps on the budget and you can't just do that. So we formed this committee, which again goes back to my learning that you don't get these things solved on your own. Mm-hmm. So we formed the committee. It's a board committee. We're, we're meeting every month. We have the department of, um, we have United Cerebral Palsy's director on it. We have a parent with a kid in a wheelchair on it. We have me with a husband in a wheelchair on it. We have, uh, you, uh, we have the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation guy on it. So we had, and, this, and then our director of pupil services was on it. We had these, this nice core team that we were working every, looking at these plans and working at how are we going to upgrade the schools. We, we prioritized, we decided that like the first, the first area would be where children are. That's the priority. So right. if there's a child in a wheelchair and it's in one of these schools where we have all these violations and it's a barrier, we'll remove the barriers for the children first. Second was when we did construction. That's made sense. So if we were going to upgrade our buildings, because they're old, you know, they're getting old, that would be the time to upgrade those buildings, even if there wasn't a complaint or whatever. So, And the third tier was going to be for parents. I'm going to tell you, Dan, we never got to the third tier. We got everything taken care of in the first two. Mm-hmm. So that was really uh, a great experience. But we did run into some barriers there, too. Mm-hmm. Two years, we spun our wheels on the committee. And then we decided we needed the building and grounds guy on it. And we needed a budget. So once we got the building and grounds guy on there and got a little $10,000, budget, we could start to chip away at some of the stuff. And then we, within the first, well, we passed two referendums while I was on the school board with the mm-hmm. community. There were other issues, not just handicap access so you know yeah. ada upgrades there were other issues that was back when yeah. we were trying to get fax machines and lots of stuff so we passed two referendums and by the time i was done all 24 schools we built some new schools in there too were um were um handicap accessible except there was one left that needed an elevator on the inside but all you could get into all the schools we had fixed parking we had fixed bathrooms mm-hmm. all of that so so through that initial step of participation mm-hmm. And through the kind of next step, which I feel like comes up a lot again when you talk about your career, is persistence. Mm-hmm. You were able to to make a meaningful change for people. Yes, yes. Well, if we're not part of the solution, we're still part of the problem. And there aren't a lot of people in wheelchairs. I mean, there's more than you think. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. you know, so if I didn't step up and say something, we were going to leave that problem for someone else. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to do that. And that's not, and no, you don't see those... Me. Things mm. as acceptable. You'd, no, no, yeah. not when there's a solution and a reasonable solution. That's yeah. the other cool thing about the ADA law. It doesn't require everything to be fixed. It requires you to work to make to remove the barriers. But if you're a small business and you're going to go broke doing that, you do not have to. You can you can claim the hardship. And I think for us, we had to learn to compromise. That's another great thing to learn. We weren't going to be able to go to the brewer game and sit wherever we want. You have to sit where you can. Mm-hmm. We're not going to be able to get into every small bar. Mm-hmm. We just can't. That's not reasonable. And we don't want those folks to go broke either. So most of the parties over the years we've had with friends are at our house because it's wheelchair accessible. <laughs> you know, you got to compromise with these things. Yeah. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so then how did you, how did you go from, you know, doing some of those things just on the local level there to, you know, um, I guess 
you, you were on the school board, that, so that was the first public office you held. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Not the last, though, of course. No. So, so what happened next no. then? So um, I was finishing up. Uh, I had gotten a couple of degree, no, one degree, I think, by that time I got a, while I was on the school board, I finished my associate degree, and then I enrolled at Alverno College here in Milwaukee to um, to get a bachelor's degree, because I, uh, at this point, pain was a real issue for Phil, mm. and it was pretty obvious that he wasn't going to go back to work, and uh, and he's complicated, he still is, he's complicated, mm-hmm. There's there's hospitals and doctors and you know, always figuring things out. And I can say that even after 37 years, I mean, 30 years, I guess 33, we still are always figuring things out. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, um, so I'm on the school board. I'm now I'm big into public education and how important it is and how important we reach all kids my beliefs in what was possible was elevated during that time. I ended up working, um, well, I'll come back to that. But I just thought public education was pretty important. So here we got all these schools fixed. But now there were caps on the budget and there were things you just, it was challenging. And I, there was, um, and I enjoyed being on the board because like you said, it was power. You're at the table. It makes a Mm -hmm. big difference. Uh, So I decided that uh, I would run for the assembly back then in 2004. I wasn't quite finished with my degree at Alverno, but I thought, well, um, Oh, wait a minute. No, let me back up. I did finish my degree at Alverno. Oh, yeah, I got to back up a little. And then I, uh, my first job out of college was executive director for the League of Women Voters of Wisconsin. So now I'm in Madison. And uh, my kids were like uh, middle school, high school age. And mm-hmm. I am I'm finally got my my job. <laughs> that I, you know, I had to be the care the provider for our family. So, and I loved, I loved it. I've been with the league for a long time. So they needed a director and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. So now I'm lobbying down there and I'm seeing how crazy it is down there. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, here's a problem. Mm-hmm. They're holding hearings, hearings, but it doesn't really look like they matter. And I'm like, this is kind of crazy. And then my legislator wasn't doing anything. Carol Owens had been in for 12 years and wasn't, wasn't really participating much. And then I saw the whole, uh, it was a similar situation to today where we had a Democratic governor and Republican controlled um, House and Senate. And so things weren't really getting done. It was all, you know. Divided government. It was all about, it was all about the veto override at that time. Mm -hmm. Yep. Divided government. Very similar to what we've got now. So, um, so one of the, I worked on several bills. Women's rights were big. They're always big. And I was trying to stop some of the crazy legislation coming up back then. And then um, also we had uh, gun concealed carry. I worked, that was the bill I worked on the most as a, a lobbyist was concealed carry laws. And in Madison, the way it works, I'm like, holy cow, this is, this is crazy. But I thought I could do a better job than the person representing me. And so we made it we we worked on the concealed carry laws and we had um it passed the house it passed the senate and then the governor vetoed it and then it passed uh it was overridden in the senate now we're down to the assembly the last spot and it by and the guy Gary Sherman was his name he had sponsored the original bill and he flipped his vote no one knew he was going to do this we thought we were going to lose it 
he flipped his vote at the last minute because he felt that the governor needed, we needed to have, they needed power. Mm-hmm. So it was defeated in the assembly. It was a big win. And I ended up going on NR, uh, going on public radio <laughs> up against the NRA as, you know, executive director of the League of Women Voters, because we have a lot of positions, mm-hmm. very cool mm-hmm. positions on things and um, that I believe in. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was cool. That was a great experience. Then I quit. I quit that job and I ran. It was when John Kerry was running for president. Mm-hmm. So That was the um, first election I voted in. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. 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 So I did that. I quit my job. Um, I thought I could do a better job. I ran. I thought one of the most interesting stories. So when I was on the school board, of course, I I was advocating for uh, back at the time, a program of um, business program. It was called quality management. And I was a big advocate for that. Mm -hmm. Once the teachers brought it to us. It made sense. Could we do teaching different in the classroom? Mm-hmm. And so I was, you know, on the bandwagon. I get on the bandwagon. I see something that's going to work. I'm like, let's let's get this in our all of our schools. But the press was a little bit against that and uh, a little leery of why are we doing this and why are we spending all this money on a process thing, you know? Right. And uh, then I decided to run for public office. I'm like, well, this isn't going to go well, you know, the press, because they, they inter- back then they interviewed you and you got endorsed or not endorsed. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting in the editorial office, the editors, and they're all all sitting around a table, uh, including the reporter and uh, all white men, just saying, that's that's what I was looking at. And they asked, well, why why do you want to run? And I said, well, you know, I think I can do a better job than Carol Owens. And then I went through an hour and a half of grilling by them. Mm-hmm. And finally, at the end, they said, I got, you know, one of them said, well, I got to come back to that original question. And they were like leaning forward like that. And they're listening and asking me tough questions. And they finally said, well, OK, why is it that we should support you over Carol Owens? And I said, well, look, when we needed uh, handicap access, I got on the school board and I got all the schools wheelchair accessible. When we needed sewer in the neighborhood, you know, I got on the commission and we got the sewer put in. And then as a lobbyist for the League of Women Voters, nine out of the 11 bills I did went for our way. So I know how to work with other people to get things done. And they all just went, oh, <laughs> just like that, leaned back. Mm-hmm. And I got their endorsement. And it was a pretty cool moment for me. Um, now, that was a tougher race. There was only 38% Democratic. But the birds lived in that area. The, the district was kind of prime. I thought right. I could win it. Right. And uh, I ended up getting 43% of the vote. So. A close race. It uh, was. At, you know, incumbents can be tough to beat in the state of Wisconsin. Well, you're as, incumbent. As and we I learned got... a number of times yes, in recent yeah, history yeah. here. Um, so, so I think, you know, one of my big picture takeaways from, from hearing your story is just the, the, the participation factor that we talked about, mm-hmm. the, the persistence factor that we talked about. But also just the constant eye on wanting to make some sort of meaningful change. And I think that is, you know, that's, that's what you really centered last year in, in your campaign as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there were a lot of different types of messaging and narrative and, and different types of things that got wrapped up in, you know, campaigns last year. But, but you really focused on identifying a broken system and that's broken system being the Wisconsin state legislature uh, and really wanting to find solutions and make change. 
And I think that is, you know, a part, a part of your story going back to that before and after moment when you really, you know, invested in wanting to, to make change. And I think that's what, that's what we want this podcast to be about too, is, is to talk to people about how they've made change, how they've had, you know, civility in action uh, and, and have been able to, you know, be part of the process and be part of, uh, making positive change for people. So I think that's what, you know, as the, as we continue through this podcast series, uh, we'll, we'll have different guests who can, who can talk about, you know, different ways they've been able to make change, uh, different ways that you've been able to make change. And, and I think, you know, we're at this, this moment, uh, in Wisconsin, just, you know, a few weeks before the Wisconsin state Supreme court election, where there is an opportunity for voters to bring some change uh, as well. So I think, you know, there's, there's so many different things that, that can connect to kind of the, you know, the larger themes that we're, we're trying to, to talk about in this podcast. I think so. And if, um, if we can get you, our listeners and our viewers, to take away some ideas on what you can do to create change, that's, that's what it's all about. That's why I said yes to running because I thought, well, I'm going to give the voters a chance, somebody different to vote on, so that you could feel the power that I felt when I said yes. It was mm-hmm. an amazing change, just like when Phil was paralyzed. And I finally said, wait, I can fix this. Mm-hmm. I can get in here and fix this. We have the law on our side, you know, the ADA law. Thank goodness for that. Mm-hmm. And I, all of a sudden I had this, like, moment when I got the call to run, this district is winnable. I had run before. I know what I was getting into. Mm-hmm. I have a varied background. I had, well, there's more to my story. I think we should finish two more stories okay. before the end of this podcast. Okay, let's do that. And then we'll get back into the campaign. So, yeah, yeah. so um, two, two more quick things here. Um, when I was, after I lost that race, what was I going to do? Right. Because I had a lot of leadership ability. I had gotten my bachelor's degree. A lot of jobs around leadership required a master's. I didn't have a master's. So, you know, what was I going to do? I ended up being a fundraiser for a community action agency out of Fond du Lac named Advocat. And I learned so much about poverty because that's what it was, a poverty agency. Um, And that and that was a great experience for me. And again, I was very successful at raising money. Fortunately, I had some great training that, you know, you, you want to connect grateful, uh, you want to connect cheerful givers to grateful recipients. And there are enough people out there that care about poverty. Mm-hmm. So what the agency was doing, they, they, it was a $10 million agency. And so they get most of their, all of their money from government grants, but they were trying to reach out to some local fundraising. So they added my position and I did that for about a year and a half until a position opened up for the Wisconsin Association of School Boards in Madison as a consultant. And I decided that I would love to do that um, because of my experience on school boards. Uh, so I ended up working for, for the WASB. I get there and the director says, here's a program that I want you to get up and running. And they had signed on to a multi-state research project on what school boards could do to impact student learning. It was unique because there isn't a lot of research on school boards. Mm-hmm. So I, I read, listened to all these training sessions, videos, and I went to these meetings around the country with Iowa and Connecticut and Washington. There was a group of consultants. It was based out of Iowa, though. 
that said, we don't know what school boards do in high achieving districts, but here are some things we looked at in a small study we did. Mm -hmm. So now can we develop the leadership program around what school boards can do? Well, damn, I did fellow people. I did the same thing. I'm like, this is a great solution to a problem. And the problem is we don't reach all kids in our schools, no matter what kind of schools they are, Mm -hmm. we're losing kids. Mm -hmm. And this research was all about elevating our beliefs that it was possible because it's usually not the kids fault they're not learning it's the grown-ups in their lives not doing the right thing so i consulted with school boards here in wisconsin and i took a job as director of board development in montgomery alabama and that's when i learned about race because there were a lot of uh racial issues down there in montgomery still sure to contend with and i met those folks i met the people that worked on the bus boycott, and I met school board members, African-American that had to go to different schools, you know, and now they're school board members, and they want to show me where they went to school. And I helped, you know, I would ask them questions, how did you process that as a child? And so I was doing consulting for school boards all over the state of um, Alabama, and uh, that was after doing consulting with a bunch of school districts in Wisconsin. They tried, they wanted us to sign up districts that would participate for five years in a study. And I was able to get like 10 of them right away. <laughs> just said, do you want to learn this? You know, they mm-hmm. would call me up. They would just want some consulting. And I'd say, well, here's a project for you. Mm-hmm. So I was able to get that up and running in two states. And it was really powerful. I, um, I still, to this day, one of the reasons I was hoping to win here was to be at the table with the Milwaukee education mm-hmm. system, to, bringing that experience into what we could do to, to reach more kids, because that is the solution to crime, the biggest solution, if you ask me. So anyway, I did that um, for a number of years, and then I moved back here, and this is the second part, and then I'll be done, for Mm -hmm. at least now. (laughs) (laughs) We got more stories to tell, lots of them. Absolutely. So we moved here because my daughter got married and started having kids, and she was going to live in Tosa. And so we ended up moving back to Wisconsin about 10 years ago. And knowing what I know about school boards and community engagement, I went to the Whitnall School Board meeting and I was just going to, you know, see what's going on in my community because I wanted to know. And I just came off of doing all this consulting, knowing there's really great stuff out there. So I go to the board meeting. It turns out a board member was, how did it go, Um, resigning and I ended up applying but didn't get it. Then the following spring, no one is running for school board. So I go in and I knew the superintendent from when I did consulting work. I had worked with him in Beloit. So, you know, we were familiar with each other. He says, you know, there's nobody running for school board here. And I I went in to talk to him about community engagement, not being on the board. And he goes, no one's running. And I said, are you kidding? I'm going shopping. Like I hadn't, this wasn't on my radar to be on the school Mm -hmm. board here. I said, I don't know anybody. I don't even have time to get signatures. It was that day, the Mm -hmm. deadline. Mm -hmm. He says, you don't need them. You just have to get this notarized. So the minute I took the pack at home, I knew I was in trouble. I'm getting on the school board. (laughs) (laughs) So I end up on the school board here now. It took about a year. And when you say here, here in? In Whitnall, in in Hales Corners. I live in Hales Corners, by the way. Yeah, that's right. Good point. We should talk about that. Where am I? Um, Living in Hales Corners. And uh, there's issues with handicap access. And no one had really taken it on in this district. So make a long story short about that. Ended up being the driver of getting an assessment done. And then the board board could take it, run with it, and pass referendums to um, 
all of the schools now here are up to code. So for another podcast, Persistence we're going to talk change. about the library here, which is still not done. So I'm right. always working on that. That's but right. Yeah. That's another Those one of your the, projects yeah, that you've so spinning, been undertaking lately Absolutely. Well. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the big picture background of how I got here, how I ended up in Hills Corners and then got that call to run. And it was the best thing that I could have done. And it was a remarkable campaign. It and was. I think you had, you know, you had such a unique experience talking to people uh, at the doors that you you were knocking when you were canvassing and campaigning. Uh, unique experience as well with the, the bird songs uh, uh, concert series uh, with, with Chris Porterfield, uh, who is now also running for, for school, school board, board. Uh, mm-hmm. here in, uh, in this area. Uh, so I think, you know, it, we're just want to have an opportunity through this podcast to, um, you know, to continue some of those conversations that you had uh, in the campaign and, and continue, you know, just bringing some of that, some of that energy and persistence and, and change making uh, to, uh, to have these, these conversations going forward. So I'm really excited uh, that we're able to do this uh, at the recombobulation area uh, and uh, excited about what's to come in these next, next 10 episodes of the podcast. Well, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Dan, for doing this. And, uh, We can run on a civility platform. We'll talk more about that next. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. The Bird on a Wire podcast series is sponsored by Civic Media, the fastest growing hometown radio network in Wisconsin, broadcasting local news, talk, sports, music, and sensible commentary throughout the state. Visit civicmedia.us to find your station and tune in to your community. Civic Media, hometown radio refreshed. Music for this podcast was written and recorded by Chris Porterfield. This podcast was produced by me, Dan Schaefer, and published by the Recombobulation Area. Thank you for listening.